House Majority Whip Brian Cutler has made a rapid rise in leadership since he was first elected in 2006. I recently sat down with him to discuss growing up in southern Lancaster County, dealing with the death of both his mom and dad at a very young age, and his non-traditional route in education from a trade school to law school. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs, and uh, I'm in Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania at Springhouse Brewery with uh, my host, uh, Brian Cutler, representative uh, from Southern Lancaster uh, and the House Majority Whip. Uh, Brian, uh, Thanks for coming on Brews and Views. Absolutely. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. Well, I, I know it doesn't take a whole lot to get you to enjoy a brew. So uh, <laughs> I, I kind of said, and we'll do a podcast. It's <laughs> a great reason. <laughs> well, great little location here in Lancaster. So uh, it's fun to be able to have a chat uh, about uh, how you got into politics and what's going on in Harrisburg today. Help you uh, uh, give us a pathway here uh, in 2018. And uh, so, Brian, I, you know, kick things off here. Um, you grew up in, in Southern Lancaster. You've kind of, this has been home for you. Uh, I want to hear about, you know, how you grew up, uh, school, um, you know, how you ended up in politics, uh, right? Uh, you probably dreamed of this from, you know, an early childhood. Uh, uh, but tell us where you grew up. Sure. What was that like? Yeah. Sure. I, I, uh, I grew up in Southern Lancaster County. And my mailing address is Peach Bottom, although when I was younger, uh, we, we only had a handful of neighbors. Uh, since then, there's been some development around this, so there's like more homes Like a nuclear now. power plant? Well, the, <laughs> that is across the river from us, yes. And at night, you can see the lights um, <laughs> reflecting on the skyline. And uh, that's where, uh, honestly, my family's been since 1800. Uh, mm. My family moved into uh, that area from Bucks County originally. Uh, they came over. They were Quaker, and they came and settled in Middletown, Bucks County, which is in Representative Frank Ferry's district. Then, as they headed towards uh, the 1800s, uh, you know, the they moved into Southern Lancaster County. They were one township over, and then by 1800 census, they were in Drewmore Township, and we've been there ever since. And uh, so, I grew up there. My dad was a welder at Sperry, New Holland. My mom was a nurse for Dr. Hunt who was a local family doctor before that. She worked at Lancaster General Hospital mm-hmm. in the critical care unit and the tr- and then was one of the founding nurses of the trauma unit. And uh, ultimately, I- and ironically, my wife ended up working there many years later, uh, about 20. And brothers and sisters uh, growing up? I've got up? one younger sister uh-huh. uh, who currently, uh, she's also a nurse. She lives out in Salt Lake City, Utah now with her husband and two kids. And uh, when I was in high school, um, my mom got sick with Lou Gehrig's disease, and she was diagnosed in on Valentine's Day, February of 1991. And she'd been sick for a couple months before that. Uh, I'd accepted the Lord, ironically enough, the year right before that. Hmm. And you know, for any ideas that everything would be would be uh, smooth sailing thereafter, I quickly learned the power of prayer, and more importantly, the 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 love of the church and how they will care for their mm. own. Mm. And uh, so as she was sick, uh, my dad stepped up and unfortunately within a handful of months, he himself started having symptoms with Lou Gehrig's disease as well. And uh, at first that gave us a little bit of hope. We kind of figured it's statistically impossible. The odds are one and a quarter million approximately. So it's statistically it's impossible that two people would have it at the same wow. time. Wow. And while they were going through uh, their their testing, ultimately the diagnosis did in fact come back that they were one of two couples that were alive in the country at the time uh, that both had Lou Gehrig's disease, one of eight. Uh, I've since met another couple also from Pennsylvania uh, who uh, the husband and the wife learned of them both having it as well. So it's a little so bit of a... So this is happening at, while you're in high school? Yes, I was uh, 15. This, wow. I was okay. 15 when my, my mom was diagnosed. And um, my dad passed away my senior year in high school. Mm. And my mom would live until 1999 uh, for about uh, seven and a half, eight years, actually, with symptoms, which at that time was was also a statistic impossibility. They gave her 18 months to two years to live upon wow. her diagnosis. So through all of that, uh, and this is the reason that my wife and I ultimately chose to stay in Southern Lancaster County, you know, our church stepped up, our Lions Club, our friends and our neighbors, and, you know, we heated our house with firewood at that time. I still do now. And 
Um, you know, they came and cut 20 cords of firewood, which is like three years worth of firewood, <laughs> cut, split, and stacked it for us. Uh, they would bring us meals. The the Farm Women Association. And you guys, only, you guys only believe in axes in Southern Lancaster, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, we. Although we did split by hand. I finally broke down as an adult and said, "I'm tired of beating my brains out on splitting firewood by hand," and bought a hydraulic splitter. But um, you know, it was just it was a wonderful outpouring of love and support. And because so the of community, really. Oh, absolutely. Church came yeah, it was the church. It was family. friends. It was neighbors. Everybody just kicked in. And uh, that sense of community is really, uh, I later found out, very unique. Not everybody has that. There's a lot of my friends who graduated from high school and moved away that, you know, they comment they don't even know their neighbors' names, mm. let alone what's mm. going on in their lives. And that, that closeness is something that I cherished. And quite frankly, because of it, my sister and I still read, uh, you know, we, we still led fairly normal lives. Mm-hmm. We were able to participate in sports. Uh, you know, I worked on a dairy farm. Uh, and we helped take care of my mom and my dad, and, and we, we worked through that. But, um, you know, when it came time to graduate, I obviously, traditional path of college, four-year school, moving away, certainly wasn't in, in mm. my future. And you went to uh, Solanco uh, High Solanco, School? Solanco, yeah. Solanco, which, of course, is just short for Southern, Southern Lancaster, Lancaster County, County right? Yep. And yeah. my Real aunt, creative. Uh, well, <laughs> and my aunt actually is, she won the naming contest when she was a student there. Oh, really? Uh, she lives up in Messina, New York now. She said her and a group of her friends kind of came up with it. Um, I, I don't know if that's a, a, <laughs> an urban legend or okay. if there's a, some truth there, but okay. she always claimed that she was the one who her and her group of friends were responsible for that. So you graduate from high school and you say, hey, college just isn't the, the right. career path uh, that, that you right. could take it, at that point? And it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about technical schools. Yeah. Um, look, I recognize that college is not for everybody. It certainly wasn't for me, not just for my life reasons, but also, um, you know, I, I honestly didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. Uh, I, you know, I was interested in a lot of things. Yeah. And I think what 17, 18-year-old actually does, uh, right? I mean, uh, my, 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 my degree, uh, you know, uh, changed multiple times in my first couple of years. Well, I, I, I saw each one through. I went to x-ray school at Lancaster General Hospital uh, right out of high school. It was okay. a two-year program. My wife, who was a year behind me in, in high school, went to become an LPN or a licensed practical nurse. So that when we graduated uh, within weeks of each other in 1995. I graduated on Thursday. We got married the following Saturday. Mm. So uh, as I kind of run through my life story here, you'll see I like jamming major life events together. <laughs> and uh, then we moved in and helped take care of my mom for about a year. Mm-hmm. And then even when we moved out of the house where my mom was, we only moved four houses up the street. We bought it. We bought a place up there. And then within about two years, we ended up buying the house back from my mom, and I moved back to the home place. So were, you, were your parents uh, politically active, None. engaged? Uh, so no. Not, not at all? No. Ironically enough, my father hated both lawyers and politicians, and I ultimately <laughs> and you became, became both. both. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, he, he generally... They, they, they so were, politics wasn't something no, you guys discussed at the no, dinner table? No, it was never already. anything that we okay. did. Now, service was. Okay. Um, you know, my grandfather uh, was a former township supervisor back in the 60s okay. uh, and my dad volunteered locally I, I remember one one uh, instance in particular uh, along that we have the train tracks that run along the river between us and the atomic plant and we would oftentimes during the summer when there were drought conditions there would be fires along the riverfront and I remember one time him going out and volunteering with the fire company to help cut fire breaks hmm. and you know, it was just something that that everybody did and um, you know we would help our neighbors in need when they needed it and you know whenever whatever the situation was if you lost a loved one or somebody got hurt on the farm you would you would pitch in and everybody would help so so you end up uh, you go to radiology school do you then go into uh the medical uh yeah i worked as an x-ray tech for started working actually i started working before i graduated Uh, we were allowed to do that at that point Hmm. and um so i would go to school during the day work at night uh, work part-time on a dairy farm as well and then uh, got a job second shift with my wife. Uh, we both worked second shift for about the first five years we were married. And during that time period, she decided she was going to go back and get her RN or registered nurse. Mm-hmm. And I kind of looked at it and said, well, I'm never seeing you. We don't have kids yet. I might as well go back to school too. Okay. So I went back to Lebanon Valley College at night. Um, 
actually, I switched to third shift then, and so I could take evening classes and maximize the number of nights I could take classes. So you're hustling up to Lebanon County. Uh, to, actually, to, uh, they at that time they had a satellite okay. campus here on Franklin and Marshall. Okay. They rented one of their buildings, and it was really nice. There was about thirty or forty of us from Lancaster General that they were moving through like a healthcare administrator's degree okay. program. And, and so that's what you got a, yep. a, a so, bachelor's degree. Yeah, in my that? bachelor's in healthcare admin. Uh, they gave me a minor in business, which I uh, I was always somewhat baffled by that because I thought it was the same thing. But they said I had the credits to qualify, so um, I did that. And then at that point, I got into radiology administration, was in charge of all of the uh, non-direct clinical pieces of x-ray. So the records retention, the film library, transcription services, billing, coding, and charging. And, and I was in that for almost two years, and that really reignited an interest that I'd had since seventh grade, which was to go to law school. Okay. And uh, so... So are you starting to pay attention to politics yet at um, this point, or is it... Yeah. You know, I, I did my normal civic duty. Yeah. I would vote, yeah. and I would pay attention, but I, I certainly never saw myself running uh, at the age that I ultimately did. I always kind of viewed it in reverse. I, re- I viewed it as I'd go get my job, and then maybe I'd do that as a capstone at some point yeah. later in my right, life. right. So it was when I went to law school, I quit my job. I, I convinced my wife that I should quit my job and go to school full time and go back to being an x-ray tech part time. Okay. And I did that. I went to uh, Widener University School of Law down in Delaware and uh, drove there every day, took classes. And during uh, my, my first year in law school and second year, I started volunteering locally on the planning commission. Uh, and that was just something just I'd always wanted government. to do. Yeah. Okay. And mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I got that position because we had a large Walmart proposal coming in and everybody in the planning commission quit. Nobody wanted to <laughs> <laughs> deal with the problem. Nobody right? wanted to deal with it. And it was approved before I got on. And, and uh, but it was it was a great time. Ironically, four of the same five board members are still there. Uh, we're blessed at our, hmm. our local level to have that kind of continuity. They're just great folks who really enjoy the work of local government. And uh, I had to give that up, unfortunately, when I won the House seat. Uh, but well, before then, we get to the house seat, because uh, while you're in law school, I know um, something happens in Harrisburg that kind of blows the place up in the sense of uh, uh, got a lot of people irate all across Pennsylvania. That being the the pay raise of 2005, right? So you're in law school at this time. I am. This happens. I am, and I was I was looking at possibly running for office uh, because I wanted to be more involved locally. And ironically, this is one of those times where I. I was frustrated with Harrisburg, yeah, yeah. and I actually started going out and looking for people to run. I said, you know, you ought to run against uh, our current representative. And I had about three Everybody or four people says, no, say, no, Brian, you, you ought should. to run. Yeah. Right. And uh, there's some foreshadowing there into, you know, how I ended up becoming whip, which I know we'll get to in a minute as well. But it wasn't something that I was looking to do at that time because, as I said, I always looked at it as in reverse. I always looked at it as once I had my career – I would then run for office. And after about four people said, why don't you run? I said, you know what? Why don't I? Well, but, but, and I guess what you're talking about is actually taking on an incumbent Republican because uh, this is a Republican seat, right? I mean, it's a fairly Republican district. Um, and uh, actually, the son of a former senator, or I think he was still senator. He was still at senator the time. when I challenged. So you had son. Gib Armstrong, the senator, and Gib Armstrong, uh, the representative, uh, who actually voted against the pay raise, but then took it, which I think probably didn't uh, yes. uh, resonate real well with the voters. Right, and that there was that was a source of frustration for a lot of folks. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I I started out kind of viewing the opportunity to run and potentially serve as a way to thank the community for their support for me when I was younger. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. You know, having a, a wide breadth of life experiences and a, a different educational background, it was something that interested me. And yeah, certainly for the former representative, the the mechanics leading up to the vote, he voted to suspend the rules and then voted against the pay raise, but then took it anyway, and they ran a news story, and they gave it back, and there was a lot of convoluted twists there that I certainly think helped the efforts, but at the end of the day, it was really about people, and it was really about making those connections, talking about issues, and that's something that I'm still passionate about, even 11 years later, but I, I will be honest, it was it was tough being in law school. I front-loaded my fall semester that year. I took 21 credits okay, so that I could take nine and be part-time 
in the, so, so in this, the spring. So this is uh, uh, the fall of 2005. You're saying, I'm going to run. Right. Uh, and you're loading up on credits because it was, it was going to be a primary Correct. race, right? Whoever so, won. Yeah. So it was going to be a sprint, essentially, from November to, 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 to May that May, year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I know you graduated from uh, 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 law school. I what, did four days after you Correct. won the primary. I won the primary on Tuesday, and then graduated from law school on so Saturday. So what was what? Was, where was the bigger celebration? Uh, uh, it was it was all together. We rolled it all together. But it was um, it, it was an amazing race. I had an amazing group of volunteers. We often joked uh, jokingly referred to ourselves as the Island of Misfit Toys from the Rudolph because we were all in some way or another like political mis. Uh, uh, cast-offs and nobody really wanted okay. to be involved. Um, you know, Senator Ryan Amit uh, was my campaign manager, and then he came and worked for me for a year before embarking on his own political career. And we just had a great, great group of folks who really cared about their community. And that's really, that was the glue that held us together. And we were able to assemble a good team, We were, and we ran a, ran a, a good race, and we won by a healthy margin. Uh, and I think that was evidence that, that my frustrations was also the community's frustration. Yeah. And uh, so you uh, actually rather rapidly, for Harrisburg standards, moved from 2006 to 2014 that you're elected uh, House Majority Whip, which uh, is really what the, the number three position in a very large body. So uh, that's that's not a um, insignificant feat to uh, kind of uh, that trajectory of into a leadership role. Well, and, and this was very similar to the House race, to be honest. I actually was more interested in the policy chair yeah, spot right. because those who know me know that I'm a policy wonk or a policy nerd. And as I made my calls, I had a lot of folks say, look, I'll, I'll vote for you for that, but I'd rather you run for, for whip. And, you know, the first couple were flattering. After the first dozen, it, it <laughs> suddenly started to become a lot more real. Uh, and you know, went back to my delegation who was supportive of me running for policy and said, look, I said, this is the opportunity that's out there. It's something I don't want to pass up if it's something that we think we should do. And ultimately, I decided that uh, I would run I'd, and I'd see what happened. And, and I won. And so you, you've been busy. Obviously, yes. all that makes you real busy. But in and we kind of skipped over this with uh, you and your wife. You have two, ki- uh, three kids, three right? Kids. Three kids. Yeah. And how, how old are your kids? Cheyenne is 14, Caleb is 12, and Drew is 9. Um, she, uh, each kid, I mean, you know this as a father. Yeah. Each kid's unique. Each, yeah. each one has a different personality. They're all great kids. Uh, they're all, they all have varied interests, and uh, it's just and how, neat how seeing each of them develop. how is that balancing with the, you know, the demands of being the majority whip? Uh, and the expectations of leaders, uh, you know, and the balance of, uh, you know, uh, home life, uh, kids, raising kids. I mean, these are some of the challenges I know that everybody has to deal with, particularly in your business. It's almost like being a traveling salesman in, in many regards, right? Right. I mean, my first year as whip uh, that, that I had uh, my car, I did keep track of the mileage. And I put close to 41,000 miles on my car. Wow. You know, going to events, going to fundraisers, speaking to chamber events, whatever whatever the issue was that the member wanted, you know, I tried to be there as much as I could for for them. Still do a lot of that. And uh, so it, it is tough. One of the advantages I have with living in Southern Lancaster County is I do come home every night. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's an, a little over an hour drive, depending on what time we get done. Um, and, and the construction on 283. Yes. Yeah, right? the construction's yeah. a problem uh, right now. Uh, you know, we went from getting calls about all the potholes and the, and the bridge restrictions <laughs> to now we get calls because there's too much construction yeah. and there's too many detours. Um, but I'd rather have the latter problem yeah. than the former. So, so uh, the, the challenges of having a body right now, you have 120 other members, uh, you know, other than yourself, 121, um, operating as the whip, vote counting. Uh, particularly with it, with a pretty diverse caucus as well, because you've got a lot of folks from Western Pennsylvania that are very conservative on probably every issue, uh, and then you've got a pretty strong uh, cadre of folks in southeastern Pennsylvania um, that, maybe to put it, are less than conservative on a lot of these issues. Look, we've got a great caucus in terms of the makeup and. It, it's really something to see when we can get everybody pulling in the same direction and working towards the same goals. And that's, that's really, that should be the goal, I think, on every issue. I'm a firm believer that on every issue uh, that you can find that middle ground to come to an agreement that all sides feel like they made progress. And that really should always kind of be the guiding goal. 
With that said, at 121 members, 19 uh, folks, in fact, could not vote for something and it would still pass potentially. Yeah. The problem I have as WHIP is I probably have, on any given day, 40 people who want to be those 19. <laughs> and then it's a matter of trying to convince everybody that we need to stick together. You know, we need to uh, work towards whatever that common goal is. Uh, but, you know, w- one of the other things, and I always hit on this anytime I go in to talk to school groups or classes about civics and government. As you pointed out, it's a very diverse body, both geographically as well as politically. And culturally, even amongst the the people, the communities they represent, from very urban areas to very rural areas. Right. And on any issue, you know, there might only be a handful of folks who are what I would call the subject matter expert. And, you know, folks always say, why does it take so long to get anything done in Harrisburg? The answer is actually fairly simple. And I'll use healthcare as an example because that's my background. When... We worked on the hospital licensing bill known as deemed licensure. At that time, there were about four of us in the, in the General Assembly that had worked in healthcare. And you know, we had a former nurse, we had a former nursing home administrator, we had a former paramedic hospital administrator, and myself. And so we've got to convince 102 people that not only is there a problem, but that our, our method of fixing it is the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. And if we're fortunate enough to do that in the House and then it goes to the Senate, you're starting all over again, probably with similar ratios in terms of subject matter experts. And then you got to convince 26 people. And if you're good enough to get that done, then you have to hope the governor actually agrees right. with you. Right. And, you know, that takes time. And when you, when you sit down and you talk through those issues, in, in the case of the hospital licensing bill, that took – you know, talking to the uh, the interest groups that were in support of it, it took 30 years to get done. Hmm. And you know, some of that's just getting the right people in the room and hashing out an agreement. Uh, and, you know, it's that kind of, of uh, just legislative elbow grease that needs to happen on a lot of issues. There's no shortage of problems here in the Commonwealth. Yeah. I think we would all agree on that. We might differ on how we would solve them, but there's no shortage of problems. And what? there's also no shortage of opportunities, which is what I'm excited about. Yeah, and, and I want to get to sort of the opportunities in, in here in 2018. Uh, but kind of looking back on just the last uh, couple of weeks of action in Harrisburg in 2017, some big issues uh, ha- have been coming up and some unresolved. Uh, but one in particular, I know something you've been passionate about and certainly uh, I have as well, is the collection of particular political monies using public resources. Um, ended up getting a vote on something that, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, from our perspective, I think you shared as well, that it went down uh, by by 12 votes, or I guess 11 votes is really what we're looking at. Um, and that's the issue. It has been called paycheck protection, but really it's ending the collection of political monies, monies that are used for politics, but are subsidized by the taxpayers and, you know, bundled essentially for one particular interest group. Uh, t- talk about that issue of, because you started championing this years and years ago. I mean, it was, it was like, and nobody was listening at that point, right? <laughs> right. Well, you were. I, I remember being on the <laughs> yeah. box with you and talking about oh, it yeah. at that point. And it's something that I've worked on since my first term, uh, because immediately after the pay raise, obviously, you, we had the issue of bonus gate and the individuals using public resources for campaign related activity. And we've now seen that stretch into all branches of government. Yeah. You know, we, we had a uh, Supreme Court justice uh, ultimately be convicted of it. We've had executive branch uh, government officials be convicted of it. We've had legislators and staff convicted of it. And for me, it's always been very, very simple. We shouldn't use state assets for campaign purposes. And the collection of of campaign money is the most campaign issue uh, that is that is overlooked, in my opinion. In and it's Harrisburg. an ethical issue, not one of cost. Correct. It's, it's not, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I understand that maybe back in the day it made sense to do it because you were actually giving uh, the unions or, or those that you're bargaining with something of value to them, and it didn't cost you as much, so you were able to get something in return for it. But in today's world of direct debit. And, and electronic banking, I don't think it makes sense anymore because of the ethical concerns that are associated with it. And when you look at that, uh, for me, it's really simple. I think everybody, just like me, should collect their own campaign money on their own time and send out their own, their own requests for it. And I don't think any group should have that special privilege to collect campaign money. But yet, you know, and this is something 
Then if the like, I know that you have like a near hundred percent rating for the NRA. Yes. Uh, and if the NRA I'd, came, I yeah. better. I'm a life member. <laughs> <laughs> and if the NRA said, "Hey, we want to uh, have the school district collect our campaign contributions," you know, the school board would laugh at them. No, it would never uh, happen. But the NEA gets to have that particular privilege, and I don't think you would want for the NRA to have access no. to to public payroll services. Uh, and this is just about. Look, nobody should be able to to utilize that, even if there is a zero cost, which we know it's not zero, uh, but it's the ethics of right. commingling public assets or resources with private political uh, dollars. Correct. And that's that's really been my thrust for the last decade or so that I've worked on the issue. I know it's something that we talked about very early on as well. And, you know, we were close on the vote. Uh, we had 90 folks who agreed with us on on that underlying issue Uh, and you know i'm sure we'll revisit it at some point in the future because i I really do think it's as simple as we shouldn't use state assets to collect campaign donations and we didn't touch the dues we didn't touch the fair share ironically when you look at all the letters that went out from the different labor organizations they all mentioned dues and fair share yeah and there was i think there was a deliberate effort to kind of obscure the facts uh, because it made it a little bit more uncertain and, you know, we, we just need to get out, further explain what we're doing, which is just touching campaign money. And, and look, level the playing field and have everybody collect their own campaign money. Well, uh, it will be interesting. We know that the Supreme Court of the United States is taking up a case called Janus, uh, which is uh, uh, challenging that all union dues are actually political dues. Uh, the expectation is that the Supreme Court uh, agrees with that assessment which will make it, uh, I think, really difficult for the state to continue to collect any of those monies if they are, in fact, deemed political in nature. Uh, correct. And that that's something that obviously we'll kind of wait to see what the court chooses to do with that this cycle. Um, and depending on the outcome of that case, we may have to take a different look at the issue. Well, I know that folks thought that, uh, look, if it wasn't going to pass by 102 votes, you'd probably drop to 60 or 70 votes. So the, f- the fact that there were 90 people willing to say, no, this is wrong, we need to end this practice, I think bodes well for the future. And, of course, uh, it didn't pass the first time in the Senate. Uh, now they can pretty much pass it at will over there. Uh, I, I certainly hope that the House uh, does the same uh, here very quickly, that we don't have to wait long for that. Now, Brian, one of the other issues that uh, uh, was certainly uh, coming up is the issue of natural gas. And I know that uh, you are in an area that doesn't have natural gas uh, drilling, but certainly a lot of pipelines coming through. So there's like controversy, you know, surrounding this uh, use of a, a, of a natural resource that's helping to really reduce our energy costs over what we would be paying otherwise uh, without it. Uh, that's one of those contentious things, I think, where you're seeing the east and west part of the state and you having to, to whip this um, can be a difficult challenge. It absolutely is. And, you know, I, I think you have to back up a little bit. And one of the things that I think gets lost in all of this is actually who owns the gas. And basic property rights tells you that whomever owns the land on top owns the gas underneath or whoever owns the mineral rights. Uh, yeah, that's, some, that's Pennsylvania law, right? That is correct. We, we, it's determined that you own those, you have property rights, not just to the surface, right? But to the, but to all the very the way center down. of the that's earth. That's right. And, and it's important to note that that's fundamentally different than a state like Alaska, where all of the citizens are deemed to own the mm-hmm. mineral rights, mm-hmm. which is why they get uh, their payment checks every year. Okay. Uh, so that, that's the first distinction. And the only gas the Commonwealth actually owns is the gas that's underneath of the state lands, uh-huh. whether it's state forests, state game lands, or any of any of those kinds of areas. So that, that's the first distinction. The, this misperception that we own gas under someone else's uh, property yeah. just isn't and real. And therefore, I am, you know, owed some cut of that, right? right? Yeah. And, and I'll use a, a non-gas issue because I recognize yeah. that this is very uh, politicized. You know, there's no discussion of owning the coal under somebody else's property. There's no discussion if if you're fortunate enough to discover a gold vein underneath yeah. someone's property. Everybody would say, well, no, that's mine because it's on my property. Mm-hmm. And this, this issue is really no different. Now, we can discuss about the environmental regulations and how to do it safely. What does the infrastructure require? Because, look, as you pointed out, uh, by my count, I think there's nine pipelines across Lancaster County mm-hmm. currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're building the Atlantic Sunrise, which is a big, uh, the biggest one and the highest profile right now. But going forward, 
I think you have to take any proposal that's being made on changing the current impact tax that's already collected. What does that give our area? And is it fundamentally different than what the new proposal is? And how do they compare? Mm -hmm. You have to do an apples to apples comparison. Under the current proposal, we get about $400,000 to $500,000 per year that's used to preserve green spaces and parks and other environmentally related projects here in Lancaster County that we wouldn't otherwise get. So that, that goes in, in one column. So you're, you're benefiting from natural gas drilling that's not even happening in your area here. Absolutely. So there's, there's money coming into your, your county today. Right. And, and the reason for that is because obviously we have the pipelines, uh-huh. you know, so that they do run through our area and they do impact it. Sure. Um, and, you know, that, that's the balancing question that I think we have to do as policymakers. And I think across the board, uh, people say, look, uh, uh, companies uh, should pay for the government they use or the negative impacts, whether it's on the environment or infrastructure, right. uh, that they should be held accountable because otherwise other taxpayers have to cover that. So this isn't a matter of saying, hey, they shouldn't be held responsible for anything that uh, they do to uh, our environment. Right. And I think that that's an important aspect of this discussion is that nobody's saying they should not pay taxes because they pay every single tax, every other businesses. The question that is being debated today is, should they pay not only additional one, but one on top of the additional ones they already pay? Correct. And that's where a lot of disagreement is happening. Right. And, and there's a robust discussion about that, not just in our caucus, but in the House and Senate in general. And, you know, the question is whether or not we're going to recognize the opportunity that this presents. You know, we are the Keystone State, not just by shape, but also by location. Yep. And, you know, we're within... Uh, you and know, population now. We just surpassed uh, Illinois, and we're the fifth largest state now, if uh, uh, new census data saying that. Oh, I was yeah. not aware of yes. that. So, you know, you, you look at all of that in our location and our rich natural resources, I think we've got huge opportunities to reshore American jobs here in Pennsylvania, just like the Procter & Gamble, a plant that's up in the Northeast, you know, where they drilled for gas on their own property. They do cogen, electric, and, and gas production that benefits their plant. And, you know, when you look at that, if we can't compete internationally on labor costs, but we can compete on energy costs, that alone will keep us competitive on the national level. And it's something that I think we need to, we need to look at how we maximize that. What does that mean? You know, do we have the infrastructure? You know, we have the highway system. We have a lot of pluses in our column in terms of being able to get products to market. So why not actually make them here? Mm-hmm. Why not actually do those kinds of efforts and, and those kinds of goals going forward? You know, let's become more business friendly so that people want to come here. They want to make things yeah. here. That'll produce family sustaining jobs. And then we need to take the education system that we have. We have great schools, both trade and two year and four year colleges. Let's match up what the job skills market says they need with what we're actually teaching. Sometimes we miss the boat on that as policymakers. And when you look at it, you know, I'll never forget my own guidance counselor when I was in high school said, you can't go to a trade school, you need to go to college. And, you know, because of my family circumstances, that wasn't in the in the cards at that point. And I eventually went to college. But the truth is, my practical degree, um, you know, everybody that I went to school with, they all make a great living as x-ray techs. It, and it's a wonderful, rewarding mm-hmm. career. So if we can do a better job of matching up those kinds of jobs for our future students and employees, I think we've got a much better chance of actually keeping them here in the Keystone State. Right now, our biggest export are those young professionals under the age of 40 who have degrees have to go elsewhere to get jobs. Well, before we talk about kind of where we want to go, where you think things will go in 2018 from a policy agenda, the things that we do need to make Pennsylvania a better place uh, uh, for business, for people to stay. Uh, and just as a, as a caveat, yeah, we're the fifth largest state, but that's because Illinois is just so bad. People are fleeing. It's not because Pennsylvania is doing a lot yeah, of we're things. We're not growing right. fast. Yeah. yeah, we're not growing fast. Um, but one of the other contentious issues, of course, before uh, um, you guys uh, broke for the year uh, was that of abortion, of increasing uh, uh, the, the or saying you may not have an abortion after 20 weeks. Um, Governor Wolf uh, vetoed that, said that this would be the most restrictive uh, uh, you know, uh, law in the country. Um, but talk about why that was brought up and how that, you know, is that true? I mean, I, I'm aware that um, other countries actually have far more restrictive 
uh, you know, Western European countries even, far more restrictions than what, what you guys were trying to impose. Uh, I know the Senate passed it, you guys passed it, put it on the governor's desk. Um, talk about that issue. Yeah, it, that's something that obviously I'm passionate about because I believe that all life is precious and has a purpose. And when you look at this issue for me, uh, it's certainly one that's rooted in my own personal beliefs, but it's also rooted in one that I think that a, a culture needs to respect life in order going forward in order to recognize the value that every person has. And when you look at this, the governor's veto is really, I think, based on, on some flawed logic. He's not recognizing the advances that we've made in medical technology over the last 20 years since Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey were both decided. When you look at the cases as they originally stood, the original approach uh, was to not allow abortions out to 27 weeks. You know, you could have it up to 27 weeks, but after 27 weeks, uh, they were prohibited. And then with Planned Parenthood v. Casey, they were dropped down to 24 weeks because that was the point of viability. Okay. And it made sense at that point in terms, you know, and as an x-ray So science, technology, biology suggested, all right, this is, you know, viability is when we ought to set that. Correct. And and in fact, in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, they clearly articulated the position that the state has a compelling interest in the life, health of the mother as well as the unborn child after viability. Okay. So that's the basis for this bill. And when you look at our Abortion Control Act, a couple things that are important to note. One is that the 20th week actually means 20 weeks, six days. So you're really looking at 21 weeks before it actually takes effect. Okay. Just And, and that's a, a, a quirk of how we count the aging of the baby as mm-hmm. opposed to other mm-hmm. states. So, And when you look at viability, there's been reports out of the United Kingdom that indicate there's about a 4 to 9% survival rate for babies born at 22 weeks. And again, typically that involves uh, medications that expedite the development of their lungs and you know they're able to then be on respirators and then eventually uh, grow into young, healthy children. Mm-hmm. And so this law was really about updating it to current medical practice standards. I don't think anybody would agree that that things haven't advanced right. in the last 20 years. Right. So that's that's the first piece in terms of the time period. The second piece dealt with what was called as a, a dismemberment abortion, but really, uh, and I apologize to the listeners, but I think it's important to understand what it is. It's really killing the baby by tearing its limbs off. Mm. And we, we simply said in the bill that you can't do that, mm-hmm. um, that uh, you have to, you have to, Kill the baby in another method and not let it bleed to death because they can it's proven and there's medical studies and they may not all agree but it, there's enough of a question that i think we should yeah. err on the side yeah, of yeah, life right. and err on the side of safety that babies can feel pain at that age and we spend a lot of time in harrisburg talking about the humane use of the death penalty and whether or not we should use it i, I think that we owe that same level of respect to life on the other end of the spectrum mm. And, you know, again, just like in the, in the union uh, political money collection debate, there was a lot of uh, obscuring of the facts. Yeah. They said, well, you, you know, you're not going to allow this, this common procedure known as a D&E. That's not true. The D&E is the procedure. It's not the abortion in and of itself. Mm-hmm. It, it's a dilatation and evacuation. That's the medical term. And yet the opposition was allowed to lie and say that it would outlaw that procedure. But the truth is, if the, if the baby has passed for other reasons, whether at the abortionist's hands or for natural causes, that procedure is perfectly legal under, under the bill as drafted. I don't, think that that's, I don't think that's a radical position to yeah. take. I think the governor's position to kill babies that would otherwise be viable outside of the womb is the radical one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it basically saying we want to be like China and North Korea because uh, uh, it's the rest of civilized world. Uh, doesn't allow this uh, yeah. uh, practice. A lot of yeah. other Western nations actually cut it off sooner than 20 weeks. Yeah. There are some that go down as low as 12 and 14 weeks. Mm. So I, we are actually the outlier, yeah. and you name two of them, uh, one being uh, China, one being North Korea, that allows abortions up to 24 weeks. Mm-hmm. And you know we have to recognize not just where we're at under our own constitutional law cases, 
but where we're at in terms of the rest of the world. And right now, we're lagging on this issue. All right. So 2018, uh, it is election year. you got all of the houses up, half of the Senate. We've got a gubernatorial election. Uh, your Speaker of the House is running, uh, plus a senator uh, from York is running, uh, multiple candidates uh, in this. Um, what can happen a legislative. I mean, where do you see things going in 2018 that are going to say, all right, uh, how do we grow the economy? What do we need to do to improve our education system? How do we make sure that we take care of the poor and the health needs of, of the elderly who can't afford it, while also saying, we're not going to be raising taxes this year. Uh, we're actually need to do some things that would improve our, our business climate to make this a place that, that's growing because people are moving here, not because uh, Illinois is losing population at such a rate that it ends up pushing us up to number five. Yeah, that's certainly not the way we want to move up the, up the list. <laughs> um, no, look, I think you hit on all the, all the issues that not only that I think important, but more importantly, I think that the voters recognize as being important. Uh, I, I think that the federal tax code bill that was recently passed, uh, we're going to have to look at our own tax code to see yep. how that meshes and what that means and what impact that's going to have on revenue collections. Uh, arguably, if the economy kicks off, that's the best way to grow revenues because when the economy grows and people are fully employed, then you know, you're gonna, we're going to naturally collect more tax revenue. And you know, it's not just about collecting more revenue, which I know is something that this governor has focused on uh, with his multi-billion dollar tax proposals each year. But it's also about making sure that we control the expense side of the equation. You know, we passed a series of budget reform bills to the Senate before, you know, in all the, the rapid action there as we wound down last week. One was the Taxpayer Bill of Rights or the Tabor constitutional amendment. Uh, we were able to successfully pass that. Which would uh, basically limit the growth to inflation plus population growth. Correct. Uh, but you could exceed that with a uh, super, super majority, majority vote, vote or in the case of an emergency uh, if you needed to spend Correct. it. But it's basically saying we want to have better guardrails on the growth of, of right. government spending more and in line with, well, the growth of the economy as, as one measure. Right. And so that's important. But as a constitutional amendment, that's going to have to pass the House and the Senate two consecutive sessions. Yep. So this will be the first, if we're fortunate enough to have that, and then go out for a voter referendum after that. That's something that I think taxpayers understand, because all we're really simply saying is that government should live within its means just like you and I yep. do at home. When you, you make more money or you make less money, you base your expenses off of that, and you don't spend what you don't have. Right. And you know, quite frankly, that's how we got into this problem yeah. uh, with the governor. And the other budgetary reforms are all outgrowths of the actions that this governor has taken by not signing a budget, not putting things in budgetary reserves. You know, we're, we're looking to tighten up the Budget Act to make sure that that doesn't happen again. And not just this governor, but future governors as right. well. Because it would tie every governor's hands of like, look, we need to have better fiscal stewardship uh, when you're running deficits or, you know, uh, when you don't have enough money to pay for the bills you've got. Right. And yeah, so that's, that's important. And I think when you look at some of the other issues, uh, I think on the education front, we've got to do a better job of matching the job skills that are needed in the current market to what we're offering students. Uh, you know, when you when you hear from uh, folks who work in the construction trades that students can't read rollers and they can't do basic geometry to, you know, to make trusses uh, for homes and things like that, yeah. it's, that's something that we need to revisit. And I think sometimes we spend too much time focused on standardized testing and not enough time on practical application. Uh, and, you know, that pendulum swings back and forth. And I think that you're going to start seeing that swing away from standardized testing. What uh, what do we need to do on the policy side in order to, well, foster more of that innovative entrepreneurial thinking in education that's, you know, saying, hey, the, the same old model of kind of the factory model of, uh, you know, put all kids on conveyor belt and move them through at the same pace, and but creating those alternatives for post, you know, K-12 uh, avenues that uh, just make it easier uh, and, uh, you know, for kids to be able to find the career that they want, whether it's a two or four year uh, degree. I think a lot of that actually comes from practical experience. Obviously, I gravitated towards the medical field because that's what my mom was in. Mm -hmm. And when you look at things like that, it's about getting those kids, those opportunities and that exposure. So I think some practical uh, rotations in high school, I think certifications, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do from a computer now. And if you can become certified in something or be exposed to something and then do an internship based on it and get credit for it, I, I think that will open up the eyes 
of the students to what lays out there in terms of opportunity. And you know, maybe they'll, they'll discover a passion they didn't know they had just because they were exposed to something. And when you, when you look at uh, what our colleges offer, I think there needs to be some more flexibility in the programs in terms of the approaches. Uh, you know, they need to be able to respond to a changing market. Millersville University has actually done a really great job of this, specific to Lancaster County where they've developed a sound technician degree uh, for Claire Brothers Sound, which does the sound for most of the major music acts that tour. And uh, for the, your listeners who might not know, we have the Rock Lidditz Project here, which is all about uh, building stages and lights and sound for many of the, the, the rock stars and the country stars that tour the country. It's all built right here in mm-hmm. Lancaster. Mm-hmm. So they build a tailored degree to basically feed workers into that system. And that's just an opportunity that is hyper local and it's it's one where the school recognized what the need was Mm. and you know i think those we need to look for more opportunities like that you look at the marcellus gas and you've got you got all the downstream benefits of it in regards to cheap energy production but also the cracker plant that's going to be built out in beaver county and the and the plastics and the downstream things that can be built from that it's a huge opportunity but before you can ever convince a business to move here, we've got to improve our business environment. That that involves tort reform. That involves business tax reform based on what happened federally. Now, it all you know when you look at our current business tax structure, it's the least friendly in the yeah, country. Yeah. And you know we wouldn't have to move very far up that list, and our overall ranking would would leap forward. Right now, our fastest growing population subset are those age 80 and older because we're a very good state to retire in. We need to become a great state to have a profession in because that's the tax base that we need to grow. And right now we're exporting those young folks, as I indicated earlier, because they're going elsewhere to get jobs. Yeah. You know, they're moving to South Carolina, North Carolina, where, where industry is relocating. And we need to be in a position to allow that to happen here. And probably the biggest uh, unknown, below-the-radar hurdle right now is actually environmental permitting. When you look at year-over-year job growth from 2015 to 2016, every sector of our economy grew but one. That one is a big one, though. It's construction. And when you dig into it a little bit deeper, and I'll use our own region as an example, while it's improving, there's still about an 18-month to 24-month wait for permits. So it's no surprise that the recovery in 15 hasn't hit the yeah, construction right, industry right. yet because it's going to hit next year. <laughs> and when you're waiting two years to get a permit, when by contrast, Maryland can get one in 90 days, yeah. you know, if you're looking to site a chicken house in southern Lancaster County or northern Maryland, from a pure business standpoint in terms of predictability, you might pick Maryland over us because time it makes more sense and yeah. time is money. And you know you can't tie up working capital for two years. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's the environment that we're in right now. If we want to get serious about jumpstarting our economy, I think the first thing we can do is expedite the permit process, make it more user-friendly, and make sure that we're actually getting people to work. Because that's a huge sector of our economy that then will play into a whole lot of other ones. Well, creating those jobs, of course, is part of uh, what the you know ideal is of getting people off of welfare, which, of course, uh, human services welfare is the single largest uh, area of the budget, and it's growing at an unsustainable rate, meaning we don't have enough revenue coming in to be able to pay for what are the, you know, the projections for growth uh, in years. And of course, Governor Wolf hasn't been very helpful on that. You guys put a just a requirement that able-bodied adults uh, without children would have to pursue uh, work uh, in order to continue to receive benefits instead of not, you know, incentivizing them to go get jobs, which, which is shown in states that have done this that it actually improves the amount of money they're bringing home far better than just getting a check in the mail. Uh, when you have a job, you're making more money, and it's actually it contributes to your own self-esteem and, and all of that. Um, how do you see getting your uh, arms around that big? I mean, it's a lot, right? I'm asking you a big question because it's the biggest chunk of the budget, particularly in the face of a governor that hasn't been willing to make uh, any reforms that would uh, you know, bend your cost curve down. Yeah, we absolutely have to bend the cost curve going forward. In fact, the governor himself admitted at a recent press conference that his projected costs for increase in the Medicaid budget were $300 million next year. Uh, to put that into comparison, uh, that's the same amount by which the pensions went up this year, mm-hmm. approximately. Mm-hmm. And when you, you're looking at 40% of the budget, which is what uh, health and social welfare services 
represents, the largest part of that being Medicaid itself. Yeah. It's a substantial part of the budget. So we, we need to start looking at quality right now. When you look at the fee-for-service model in, in some of the areas, it still remains. That needs to be looked at. And we need to be smarter about how we deliver care. You know, as people cycle through sometimes, we have these individuals known as super users who will come to the ER multiple times. You know, and sometimes it's because they want to come and they want to uh, get a meal, for example. And yet, it'd be much cheaper to provide meals on wheels to these folks you know, once you identify what yeah. their real need is. But they recognize coming to the ER as being the opportunity to get the meal. So Lancaster General here, the, where I worked and my wife worked, um, they, they had this project, uh, it was called Care Connections, where they, they had intensive wraparound services. And they were able to save several million dollars in their first year of implementation just because they identified high users identified the underlying reason why they were repeat users of the emergency room, which is the most expensive place to do Mm -hmm. services, got them a a medical home and a family physician that could oversee their care, and the cost dropped dramatically. And and we need to do that on a statewide basis. Yeah, and isn't this kind of the idea of saying, hey, let's let's give, we're, we're, we're going to pay for this, but instead of Harrisburg deciding how you're going to spend that money, let's let the locals decide what the best way is to deliver these services and given the resources that we have. It's kind of that, I think we did this under Corbett, didn't we? Yes, where there was the block, block grants of the social I mean, service funds. Is that funds. something that Governor Wolf is willing to do, or is he basically saying, "No, we want to control all this from the Department of Human Services"? Well, at this point, he vetoed all the reforms that we sent him. You know, the work requirement. Uh, I think we should take another swing at that. I think we should take a look at what we've got in terms of those improvements that we could offer to the system, because it will continue to be the largest sector of our budget for mm-hmm. many, many years. Mm-hmm. So we've got to control that cost. Otherwise, it will continue to eat into every other area of the budget. If folks want to spend more on classroom education or infrastructure or whatever whatever their issue is, we have to understand how the other parts of the budget are just consuming it by virtue of their uncontrolled growth. And some of that is the governor's fault because he unilaterally expanded Medicaid. Yep. About that, $400 million, uh, more overspend right. that's last fiscal year. And then when you, you couple on that with a $300 million increase, yeah. you know, I mean, that, that is we not can't, sustainable. We can't afford this, yeah. And, you know, so when you look at all of those components, we have to have a comprehensive approach to that. I think it can be improved. That's the important thing. I actually think it's fixable. It's just a matter, and, and the governor uh, claims to be a businessman. I'd like to see him use his business skills in that area. Well, wouldn't we all, Brian? Uh, but, hey, I really appreciate your joining me here on Brews and Views at uh, Springhouse Brewery in Lancaster. Uh, it's been a great chat. Uh, good to hear your story of how you got involved and and overcoming some of the obstacles that were thrown in in your life and uh, appreciate your service appreciate the job that you're doing and uh, well uh, I look forward to a productive 2018 and uh, let's make uh, you know Pennsylvania a place that's growing because we're doing things right not because Illinois is doing things wrong (laughs) yeah I don't want that to be our tagline (laughs) all right Brian uh, thanks again for joining me thank you You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.